Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Nick Hyam about his book titled The Mercenary River, published by Headline in 2022, um, which tells us about something that we take for granted, water, and specifically water in London, um, which is one of the largest and richest cities in the world. Um, Disclaimer, it is also where I am based. Um, And for a city that is so famous for having a massive river right down the middle of it, uh, having water that's reliable, that's clean, that's accessible to people who live here, uh, turns out has actually been a really contested and complicated story uh, that Nick takes us through in this book. So it's absolutely fascinating to those of us who live or have lived in London, um, but also tells us a lot about uh, economic history, political history, um, kind of the intersection of the two, and a lot of other things as well. So I'm really intrigued to uh, be talking to you, Nick, and asking you to tell us a bit about the book through this interview. Well, thank you very much for having me. Could we start off with, please, with you introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Uh, Yes, I'm a journalist by profession. I spent 30 years as a correspondent at the BBC and um, I retired. And as um, retiring journalists often do, I decided I wanted to write a book, but uh, I didn't want to write a book about my career as a journalist. They're usually pretty boring books like that. Uh, And I wanted to write about something which I had come across in the neighbourhood of North London, where I live, um, uh, and which had initially intrigued and puzzled me and then absolutely fascinated me and that was something called the new river which um is not new and it's not a river it's uh, a man-made aqueduct uh, which was dug to bring fresh water drinking water from hertfordshire um about 20 25 miles as the crow flies to the city of london and it's not new because it was um completed more than 400 years ago in 1613. And astonishingly, it is still a fully functioning part of London's water supply. About 10% of London's drinking water comes down the New River every day. And these days, it stops just north of my house at a couple of 19th century reservoirs, which have now been turned into as a bird sanctuaries and so on. Um, but originally, it ran past where I live, down to um, uh, a point on a hill between Islington and Clerkenwell on the northern fringes of the city. And there there was a, a reservoir called New Riverhead. And from that, pipes, pipes made of wood ran down through the streets into the city and delivered water to customers living in the city of London. Seems like a good reason um, to investigate further, uh, especially when something is called New River and yet is neither of those things. That would certainly raise some questions for me um, that I'm glad to have answered by your book. <laughs> uh, yeah, very much so. And also, I, one of the intriguing things, I'm, I'm a 
a little bit of a sort of psychogeographer on the side. I'm one of those people who's fascinated by what you can see of the ancient city just hiding beneath the surface of the modern city. And uh, because the New River doesn't run uh, south from uh, those two reservoirs any longer, um, you can nonetheless... Uh, trace its course on the street map and in various uh, features of the landscape, little odd bits of stretches of water sort of sitting in a park and abnormally wide streets down the middle of which it used to run. And and so there is the delight of excavating into the kind of physical, immediate physical history and landscape of the city, uh, as well as um, you know, telling a, a straightforward historical story, um, which, as you said in your introduction, because what I've tried to do is 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 tell the history of water supply in London as a whole, not just the New River. Um, it touches on so many different aspects of social history and economic history and political history and technical history and scientific history. And it's um, researching the book was absolutely fascinating. I can imagine. Um, and I'd love to kind of share some of that with our listeners. Obviously, we're not going to be able to go into every detail, unfortunately, but I'm hoping that we can kind of do a bit of a tour through the chronology and maybe get to some of the highlights and some of the most um, interesting or consequential aspects of it. Um, and while the book doesn't necessarily start in this place, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, um, I'd really love for you to kind of help us understand one of the key factors about water in London um, is that for so much of its history, it has been private enterprise that is in charge of normal people having access to water. Um, how did that become a thing that private companies, corporations, etc., um, were in charge of? Well, it happened around the same time as the New River was was being built, and the New River was um, a part of that um, switch. In the Middle Ages, uh, London's water was supplied by the city of uh, the city of London authorities, who tapped springs all round the outside of the city and ran what were called conduits uh, through uh, the walls and into the heart of the city, from which people could get, they, they, they terminate in kind of water fountains, and from these people could get water free. Um, or you could, if you had a well in your backyard, you could have your own private water supply, or indeed you could just dip a, a, a bucket into the River Thames. Um, and that was a very satisfactory and successful um, uh, way of supplying Londoners with water um, up until the 17th uh, that big about the 16th century, um, because between about 1500 and 1600, the, the population of London quadrupled from around 50,000 to 200,000. And uh, there simply wasn't enough water. These conduits couldn't supply anything like enough water. And the city, short of money as local authorities, municipalities always seem to be, um, privatised the problem. Uh, and the New River, which was um, funded and constructed by a city grandee, a, 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 a very rich goldsmith, a man called Hugh Middleton, was part of that. Um, but there was also an earlier privatised water supply, something called the London Bridge Waterworks, which uh, uh, in which the city leased um, space under one of the arches of London Bridge to uh, a man called Peter Morris or Moritz, who came from Germany, uh, who invented some sort of clever pump. And he installed a water wheel in this uh, arch 
and uh, use the water wheel to turn a pump which pump water, drive a pump which pump water up into a tank. And he then uh, sent that water in pipes through the streets and charged people uh, to connect to his pipes in the process, probably inventing the, the very idea of the sort of a modern utility company. Um, and it was that business model which uh, Hugh Middleton uh, also uh, uh, adapted. And uh, it, for the city authorities, it was, um, it was great because for uh, little or no outlay, they handed over these um, as it turned out, extraordinarily lucrative franchises to private entrepreneurs. There were others as well, but the New River and the London Bridge Waterworks were the two main ones. Um, And uh, the whole problem was solved at a stroke, except, as you say, that it left the water supply of London in the hands of private profit-making companies right through until 1904. And whilst that was okay for the first couple of hundred years, by the 19th century, that was seriously problematical. Um, The water companies um, were interested in making a profit. Uh, Their shareholders expected uh, very good returns. And that was at odds often with the need to supply Londoners with uh, uh, you know, copious quantities of affordable, clean water. And the history of London's water in the 19th century is one of something like 70 years of constant tension, friction, campaigning, politicking from representatives of the wider public who were agitating all the time for the water companies to provide a better service or, in the final analysis, for the water companies to be taken into, into public ownership. But it was, I, I mean, it was a good fix when the um, the city first came up with this idea. Uh, it became problematic later on. Um, it's worth saying at this point that the, the New River Company, which was formed by this chap, Hugh Middleton, which constructed and operated the New River, was also probably the most profitable company in British history. Uh, it returned enormous dividends for almost the whole of the sort of uh, 350 years that it was in existence. And one historian in the 1980s worked out that if one of the original shareholders in the New River Company uh, back in the early 1600s had by some miracle survived through until uh, 1904, when it was taken into public, public ownership, he, um, and, and they were all men, of course, he would have enjoyed a return, an annual return on his original investment, including dividends and the final price that was paid for his shares of 267%, 267% per year. And I really don't think there's any, any investment anywhere in the world that could have matched that. That is pretty extreme. Um, I think that's a pretty good case. And I do want to kind of come on to um, how this sort of this good solution when it started kind of became a problem for consumers. Um, But before that, one of the things I think was most interesting is that when we think about uh, businesses that kind of laid a lot of the groundwork for the types of business practices we see today, the institutions, the sort of uh, frameworks and kind of mental conceptions that we use in finance now, um, We often think about uh, the East India Company, perhaps, or we think of um, trading and enslaved people. We think of all sorts of things. Uh, And I'm probably not the only one that didn't really think about water supply. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about kind of this initial, the New River Company's practice? Like, why was it able to be so profitable, even from the beginning? 
Well, uh, you're kind of asking two questions there. One is, why was it so profitable? And the answer for that to that was that um, much water supply, um, historically and today, involves pumping water out of rivers and so on. And pumping, however you do it, is expensive. The New River delivered its water entirely by gravity until it decided to expand in the early 18th century to serve the West End of London, it didn't need to do any pumping. So it had next to no costs. Once uh, the, the supplier, the, the, the water was free and it flowed under gravity down the New River. And so uh, it needed a staff, it needed people to maintain the pipes in the streets and so on. It needed people to go around and collect the collect the money and, 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 and so on. But its costs were frankly pretty minimal. And that's why it was so profitable. And that's why no other London Water Company actually ever came anywhere near matching its profitability because they had to pump water out of the Thames for the most part. And as I say, pumping is expensive. You, The, the, the other question that's uh, included in that, I managed to forget. Um, uh, what, what was? What, remind, remind me what your question was. Um, so one of the things that's interesting about the New River Company from the book was that it was kind of being started at the same time as all of these other things that we think of as being sort of foundational for uh, essentially modern capitalist practice. Um, could you tell us a bit about that? Yes. So the, 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 the question you're asking there is, what was it about the New River Company that was innovative? Because it was innovative. There had been what were called joint stock companies where people would take shares in a venture, as they were called, and they were mainly trading companies. And the East India Company is indeed, as you say, the, the one that um, everybody instantly thinks of. Um, uh, the difference was that they tended to keep that you you would as an investor you would invest your capital in in the venture and the voyage would set off and the ships would be loaded with cargo and they'd sell it at the far end and they'd buy more and they'd bring it back and they'd sell it and there'd be a profit and at the end of the the, the, the voyage the investors would take their capital out these uh, companies did not have permanent capital. The great innovation that the new river company brought in um, which I would argue, I, I, I may overstate this a bit in the book, but I would argue makes it arguably the sort of template for all future business corporations, the modern business corporation, was that it had permanent capital. You, you can parcel up and sell off a ship's cargo. You can't parcel up and sell off an aqueduct dug across um, miles and miles of countryside. Uh, and the only way that the investors could get their money out was by essentially selling a notional share in the business, a piece of paper which said you own a part of this business. And that's what makes modern business corporations possible. Uh, we have come to accept that as a sort of natural and inevitable, almost inevitable um, phenomenon. But it had to start somewhere. And I think it started with the New River. Fascinating. Uh, thank you for explaining that. Um... It was really interesting to read, and again, uh, there's more detail in the book, but it was really interesting to read about uh, kind of how the idea of owning something like water was like not really a concept that made sense. And so ideas that did exist, like rent and property, were kind of utilized to make this make sense in this new context. Um, so I think there was a lot of innovation there. 
Yeah, absolutely. There was quite a lot of clever thinking on the part of lawyers. Um, and, and in fact, the New River Company, in some ways, was a was a false uh, start because, um, it, it, in order to uh, uh, conceptualize in legal terms what it was, uh, the uh, the company borrowed from property law and. Uh, uh, it assumed that the shareholders in the company were actually owners of the land across which it flowed. And so they would, each of them, have a, a chunk. Uh, there were 36 of them, so they would 36 shares. So it would have, they'd each have one 36th share of the, the conduit itself, which made them, I mean, amongst other things, made them landowners in the two counties through which the... Um, River flowed, Hertfordshire and Middlesex, which gave them the right to vote in elections for MPs for those counties, for instance, lots of things like that. Um, and that was um, a bit of a, a blind alley. And in fact, it took a long time uh, for some of the legal precedents set in early legal cases involving the New River to be turned on their head. Um, to, everyone had to work very hard to realise that. Um, if you're going to have freely tradable shares, uh, then you can't say this share uh, in, is equivalent to or represents physical ownership of some particular property or, or thing. Um, it's uh, an, uh, an abstract idea. What you've got here is a share in an abstract entity called the business. Um, and the New River Company wasn't like that, and it did make for problems um, during the 18th and 19th centuries and the development of company law. But in the final analysis, the New River was really important in getting us to the place where we are today with the idea of a business corporation. Fascinating. Um, I think that's in some ways makes it even more interesting because something that's kind of perfect from day one is somewhat less compelling for historians. Um, so thank you for kind of explaining that bit of nuance. Um, but I do kind of now want to jump ahead a little bit in time and talk about what you mentioned an answer or two ago um, around kind of the solution worked for a while. And then it got to a point where consumers um, were particularly motivated to demand better service. So I'm wondering if you can kind of tell us about what you term um, in one part of the book of the water wars um, and explain sort of what were ordinary people um, and consumers, what, what made them get so angry? Well, as London grew, more water companies came along. Um, they, they saw the New River Company's profits. They, they thought we can have a slice of that. Uh, they, the, the, the London needed more water companies. The New River alone could not supply the capital as it expanded geographically. Um, and uh, for a time in the 18th century, uh, the, the sort of water supply expanded quite satisfactorily with new ventures. But then um, in the very early 19th century, these um, revolutionary ideas about free markets and, and competition and so on got about. And uh, a whole series of water companies were authorised by Act of Parliament to set up in London and in, arguably encouraged. Um, I'm not sure how explicitly they were encouraged, but they assumed that they were supposed to compete with one another because competition was good, wasn't it? Uh, and so they did. And they competed to uh, serve individual streets. So in many streets in London in the early part of the 19th century, you had two and sometimes three water companies all digging up the road to lay pipes and all competing with one another to attract custom from the houses past which their pipes ran. And it, 
you don't <laughs> you don't need to be economically um, terribly astute to realize actually that's not a terribly good idea because you have three sets of sunk cost, three sets of capital investment, and potentially only about one third of the potential revenue to pay off the, the initial capital investment. And the uh, consequence of this was for the companies at least absolutely disastrous. They the the, the um, uh, the, the customers often rather liked it because they could play off one company against another. The, the competition brought down prices and all the, these companies were competing with one another on quality and service and so on. But they weren't making any money. They were losing money hand over fist. And uh, after a few years of this, reality dawned and they decided that uh, – Water, as we would now say, water is a natural monopoly. It makes no sense to have competing suppliers. And they withdrew in each company into its own distinct service area. Um, unfortunately, several of them had acts of parliament that told them that they weren't allowed to do this. Um, and uh, they didn't tell the customers what they were doing. They came to a series of secret agreements. They called it the general arrangement, um, basically in about 1817. And uh, they carved the city up between them into a series of individual monopolies. And uh, the customers uh, suffered very dramatically. This, what the customers found was that when there was only one monopoly supplier of water, they put their prices up. After this general arrangement, the, the, the companies, the water companies, put their prices up by about uh, 25%. And uh, this caused outrage and indeed, arguably, uh, led to the development of the first organized modern consumer movement uh, from people who thought that these companies were behaving very, very badly and that they needed to be taught a lesson, they needed to be regulated in some way. And that kicked off uh, what I described at the beginning of this conversation, this 70-year period in the, 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 the 19th century in which um, the, the question of who should own and control London's water and on what terms became one of the most hotly contested political issues in, in well, certainly in, in London also, arguably, um, in Britain. Wonderful. Thank you for setting that up um, so nicely, because I think it is, um, in a lot of ways, a familiar story, or at least a story we can easily imagine, but not necessarily one we think about um, happening in the early 1800s. Um, Could I just say that uh, today's utility companies, uh, in many cases, have learned those lessons um, and have understood that utilities are a natural monopoly. So that when we do get competition uh, these days, it tends to be from in something like electricity supply, different uh, providers of power, but they use the same networks in order to reach their customers. I, I am therefore <laughs> appalled and astonished uh, at the moment to see a company in London called G Networks digging up the streets to lay broadband, broadband fibre. Um, uh, and the street I live in, they've been down our street, we have already two broadband um, suppliers, uh, BT and Virgin, and now we're going to have a third, G Networks. And how they think they're going to make money, I have no idea. And I, I look at this and I see uh, a kind of potential telecom wars just as vicious and, and unsatisfactory for the companies as the water wars of the early 19th century. Fair enough. There are a lot of parallels, um, and I'm sure we'll get on to kind of what's the state of these water companies or water provision in London today, because um, you do kind of end your book with that, which is really quite helpful in a lot of ways of threading all this together. Um, 
But I want to kind of add a few other variables into the discussion, um, because you mentioned at the beginning that investigating this history uh, covered both political history, but also economic and social and technological as well. Um, And so there's a lot going on in the 1800s, as you tell us. Uh, So I've got quite a few questions about some of the bits in between. And one of them is uh, a name that I had personally not particularly come across. And yet, after reading not even the whole section on him, just a few pages, I was quite convinced that this was uh, a name worth asking you about. So why should we remember and perhaps thank James Simpson? Uh, yeah, well, why indeed? And uh, you're right, nobody's ever heard of him. Uh, James Simpson was a 19th century water engineer. He was engineer of two of what were, by the end of the century, eight private water companies in London, the Lambeth Waterworks and the Chelsea Waterworks. Um, he'd succeeded his father in that post. Um, and he was a very go-ahead and forward-thinking man. And he did two things. Uh, two innovations for which um, Londoners uh, should be thankful. The first in the 1820s was that he decided that the water that his company was, uh, the Chelsea Waterworks, was getting out of the Thames was not really very clean. The Thames had been a major source of water in the 18th century, but by the 19th century, um, some clever chap had invented the flushing water closet and the Thames was becoming very dirty and polluted. And uh, Simpson was looking for ways to purify or cleanse the water that the Chelsea Waterworks supplied its customers. And the best the water companies could do at the time was put this nasty polluted water into a a reservoir for a few days, no more than a few days, and let the sort of nasty stuff settle to the bottom and then hope that uh, their customers would put up with the still rather dirty, tainted, smelly product that they, they put into their pipes. Simpson introduced something called the slow sand filter, which is a very simple device. You lay um, a layer of coarse gravel and on top of that fine fine gravel and then coarse and then fine gravel and you allow water to trickle down through these layers of sand and gravel and it comes out at the bottom miraculously much, much cleaner than it went in at the top. And Simpson and his contemporaries thought that uh, this was a a mechanical process, that the the gravel and the sand was simply acting as a kind of strainer. Uh, Actually, what we now know is that it's a biological process because on the top of these slow sand filters, there forms something uh, called in German, a wonderful German word, a schmutzdecker, which means, I'm told, a slime blanket. And basically, this is a layer of good bugs which eat all the nasty evil bugs in the the water. Now, Simpson in the 1820s didn't know anything about germs and, and bacteria and so on, but he knew that it made these, these slow sand filters made the water much cleaner. And in due course, in 1852, the government published an Act of Parliament which required all um, London water companies to filter their water through these things. And two thirds of London's water is still purified using slow sand filters, which in principle are really no different from the things that Simpson uh, devised. So that's number one. Number two, at the other water company he was responsible for, the Lambeth Waterworks, the water was equally filthy. Lambeth didn't really have any room for filters at its intake, which was in central London where the um, uh, Royal Festival Hall now stands. And Simpson went to his directors and said, we can't go on uh, supplying the the, the f- really filthy stuff that comes out of the river in central London. 
Uh, and part of the problem there was that the river was tidal and anything that got into it in the way of sewage, instead of just being sort of swept downstream by the current, would come back with each tide. So that the, 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 the sewage in the river just flowed backwards and forwards day after day after day. And horrible stories of people watching the same dead catch and you know, float past them for several days. And Simpson said the answer to this is to go upriver beyond where the uh, river is tidal to... Uh, get our water, to source our water. And he persuaded his directors, who were you know, interested in the bottom line, to spend a very considerable sum of money on moving their intake. And uh, in due course, again, in 1852, that same Act of Parliament required all the other water companies to do exactly the same thing. Uh, and it made a huge difference um, going beyond the tidal reach of the, the River Thames for, for fresh water supplies. And the the, the evidence of that, um, although it wasn't fully recognised at the time, came in 1854 when there was one of a series of cholera outbreaks in London. And uh, after this period of competition between water companies, which I spoke about, there's only one part of London where two different water companies still competed side by side for customers in the same streets. And that was in South London. And one of the companies was the Lambeth Waterworks, which had moved its intake upstream. And the other was something called the Southwark and Vauxhall Waterworks. And in Southwark and Vauxhall households, customers that took Southwark and Vauxhall water, the death rate from cholera was 10 times that of households that took Lambeth water. And there was a very simple reason for that. The Lambeth water didn't have cholera in it. It came from upriver. The Southwark and Vauxhall water had the cholera germs in it. It came out of this polluted tidal river in the centre of London. And again, Simpson is responsible for that. Act of Parliament required all the companies to do it, but Simpson had done it first and before anyone was forcing him to. And I, you know, I admire a man like that. I think he was a, 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 a genuine innovator. I mean, I think even just one of those two things um, would have commended him and put him in the book. Um, but to have two from the same person is really quite something. Um, they were quite, they were impressive people, 19th century water engineers, actually. I grew uh, to admire a lot of them very much. They were also incredibly arrogant, but um, <laughs> they had some justification for that. Fair enough. Um, especially as you de detail in the book, engineers wasn't it wasn't even really a job at that point. There wasn't sort of standardized training necessarily um, for what yeah, it, it was meant becoming, to be an engineer. Yeah, it was becoming so by by Simpson's time. Uh, Simpson took over from his father in about eighteen twenty. I forget the exact date. By which time the the idea of an engineering profession was there in embryo. But yes, the idea of a professional uh, institute, uh, professional training, uh, professional standards and so on, um, was only just coming in at that point. Um, so I wanted to ask about this 1852 Act that you've now uh, mentioned as sort of cons requiring both of Simpson's innovations to be more widely spread. Um, both of those things that the Act did sound both sensible and like they actually made a difference. Um, but maybe you could tell us kind of more broadly about the act and to what extent did it actually kind of improve London's water supply? Oh, there's absolutely no question that it improved London's water supply. Um, uh, and um, it gets, um, from some historians, the act gets um, a rather bad press because some people feel it could have gone further and it could have gone further. Um, the, the big uh, innovation which the Act um, 
uh, was was not prepared to force the companies to bring in was what was called constant supply. Um, right up until the middle uh, well, second half of the 19th century, uh, you, you didn't get in London a constant supply of water from the mains when you turned your tap on. Um, the companies couldn't supply that much water. Their wooden pipes, which were only replaced with iron pipes in the early 19th century. Uh, incidentally, uh, James Simpson's father, Thomas Simpson, engineer at the Lambeth and Chelsea Waterworks, he was the man who introduced um, uh, iron pipes. They were an impressive pair, the Simpsons. Um, uh, you, you, what happened was that the companies employed um, people called turncocks, and the turncocks' job was to go around the streets on a regular schedule, turning on the water in each street, uh, for people to fill their cisterns or their water butts for a couple of hours every couple of days. And uh, that was fine if you were sort of a member of the middle classes, you had a nice big house and you had somewhere to put a water tank and so on. It was not so good if you remember the, the, if, you, if you were poor and living in a slum. In fact, it was, it was awful. It was very difficult to get water for the poor. Um, but that intermittent supply, as it was called, was uh, widely criticised. It was felt that um, London would be a cleaner and healthier place if water were constantly available. The 1852 Act could have man- mandated uh, constant supply. It didn't do that. The companies were uh, worried, I think, about the investment involved. And the government had only, it was with great reluctance that mid 19th century governments were prepared to bring in legislation of this kind. This was the era of laissez faire, in which business was supposed to know best and you were supposed to let the market uh, operate on its own and governments were not supposed to get involved. And uh, I I think it's impressive that the 1852 Act went as far as it did in mandating filtering and uh, mandating um, uh, uh, water intakes uh, beyond the reach of the tide. And also a third thing that it mandated was that uh, service reservoirs, once you'd filtered water before you distributed it to households, you put it into a service reservoir. These had to be covered to make sure that the water didn't once filtered, didn't then become recontaminated. Um, uh, But the Act did not go so far as to mandate constant supply. And that was a problem. It didn't really happen until uh, the 1870s that the water companies of their own volition, in many cases, finally brought in constant supply. They were always terribly worried there wouldn't be enough water, actually. That was part of the problem. And they were equally worried that the customers would waste it. They'd just leave the taps on and it would all run to waste. Um, and so they fought back against this uh, this innovation. And the Act said that if four-fifths of the people in a particular street on a particular main wanted constant supply, then they should have it. But uh, nobody ever managed to get four-fifths of the household on any particular main to agree on that. So so can you tell us um, how, if at all, uh, this project and the book was impacted by essentially everything closing when COVID hit? I started writing the book, basically, because I couldn't do any more research. Uh, COVID came along, and I had been doing a lot of research in uh, the London Metropolitan Archives, which is a a marvellous resource, particularly if you're interested in the history of London's water, because it has all the records going back right to the 17th century of 
all London's water companies. Uh, and it's, it's absolutely priceless. It's absolutely fascinating. And I have been steadily working my way through this. I could, there was absolutely no way I could look at all of it, but I was working my way through a, a, a series of uh, subjects, questions that I posed to myself um, uh, about what had happened in various uh, various times and various circumstances. And COVID came along and the archives closed and we, of course, had no idea when they would reopen. And indeed, when they did reopen, uh, they uh, there was only very, very limited access. So essentially, that brought my research to a close. And since I, I had a lot of research, I started to write the book. Um, I thought, what else am I going to do during lockdown? Um, and if you know, the, 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 the flippant thing to say would be that if I lockdown had not come along, I'd have still been researching the book. I, I would never have got around actually to writing it. But um, it did mean that there were a lot of questions that uh, remain unanswered. Um, one question was why it was that the East London Waterworks in the poorest part of London was the first to introduce constant supply. Um, I, would have, I would love to know the answer to that, but I don't. Uh, and somebody else will have to go and have a look and, and see if they can answer that. I think I, I think I'm 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 done with uh, researching London's water. It's uh, it's taken a, several years of my life, and that's probably uh, probably enough. Fair enough. Um, well, I hope someone does go uh, into the archives and research them. Um, but I, maybe you know may, maybe the lockdown was the signal you needed to start writing. Who knows? Um, but it still gives us, I mean, I can just imagine from what is in the book, just how much information and resources are in that archive. Oh, it's marvellous. And if I were, if I were um, advising, which I'm never going to, but if I were advising some sort of future history PhD student, I would say, um, get stuck into this archive, because um, there is so much there. There are so many avenues you can pursue. Uh, there's enough in there for half a dozen PhDs. In fact, um, a good friend of mine finished her PhD uh, about six months ago and relied heavily on the London Metropolitan Archives. Um, so I hope that there are other PhD students as well who are using it. Uh, oh, I've heard I, lots I, of good I, things about it from her and you. Yes, when I was talking about half a dozen PhD, I just meant in the water, the, the water stuff. Oh, I mean, the it, as uh, in general, the London Metropolitan Archives is an, a priceless uh, resource. It's well run. Uh, it's easily accessible. It's in central London. They're very nice people. I can't say enough in favour of it. Brilliant. Um, one thing I'd love to pick up on from an earlier answer is um, the idea of cholera outbreaks in London. And um, you mentioned kind of the almost perfect natural experiment of the two different companies in the same place, but supplying different water. And that's how we know um, some of what James Simpson was able to improve in the water supply. Um, but what else can we learn about London's water and the water companies by looking at the last outbreak of cholera in 1866? Yes, that was limited, um, not entirely limited, but largely limited to the area served by the East London Waterworks, which was in the East End. And the poverty-stricken, poorer areas in London tended to be the ones that suffered most from cholera. They had the the, 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 the worst hygiene, the worst uh, public health arrangements and so on. Um, what shocked me, actually, was that uh, it became clear very early on from a statistical analysis carried out by uh, a man called William Farr, who was really the government's chief 
statistician at the time, as a pioneering epidemiologist, um, and he was the man who identified this differential between death rates in the uh, Southern Vauxhall and Lambeth households south of the river in 1854. Um, he, in 1866, uh, was convinced, though by no means all experts were, that cholera was a waterborne disease. Um, and he tabulated deaths from cholera in the early stages of uh, the outbreak in 1866, and he realised that they mapped almost exactly onto the area served by the East London Waterworks. About 90% of the deaths were in that area. And he got in touch with the company, and the company really went into denial. Uh, the board of directors seemed to have done nothing. Um, maybe they were... Uh, Frightened rabbits caught in the headlights. Maybe they uh, were very worried about what the impact on their business would be. Their engineer um, did take some active steps um, in discussions with FAR, um, but they were very, very reluctant to admit that their water could possibly be to blame. And that was partly because uh, they were in that reflecting a widespread medical consensus in the mid-19th century, was that, which was that most disease was um, airborne and came from what was called miasma, bad smells. Uh, not a particularly stupid idea, you know, the, the most disease-ridden parts of uh, the capital were those which had the worst sanitation and smelt the worst, so to make that connection was was, was not absurd. But it, when evidence came along, um, and one of the other people along with Farr, who demonstrated this man called John Snow, who is widely credited justly with having first identified that uh, cholera was waterborne, when evidence came along that water was to blame, um, enormous numbers of otherwise very well-educated, intelligent and thoughtful people uh, refused to accept it. And I suspect that the directors of the East London Waterworks were among those people. They'd grown up believing that um, uh, disease was airborne, and it just it was very, very difficult for them to accept that it might be waterborne, particularly if it was their water which was to blame. So really, they did very little. And it transpired, uh, finally, after a public inquiry, that um, the engineer, who, as I say, once it was pointed out to him, did take some positive steps to try and uh, reduce the danger, he had been willing to turn a blind eye to the um, admission into the mains of the East London Waterworks for distribution of water that had not gone through the filters. By this stage, filters were mandatory, uh, but the East London Waterworks had still on occasion been topping up its supplies, basically, with water that was not filtered and had come out of the River Lee, which, like the River Thames, was tidal and was horribly polluted. And that dirty water was what had caused the, the, the cholera. But it was, it was the unwillingness of the company to uh, engage with this, the, the, the directors to uh, accept that they might be to blame, which really struck me as being uh, uh, astonishing and, frankly, um, from our 20th century, 21st century perspective, uh, inexcusable. Mm. That does seem a pretty clear case of problems. Um, and I'm wondering if you can kind of, we've traced now some of the ways in which there were pretty significant tensions between consumers um, and these private enterprises throughout really the 1800s, as you talked about in the beginning, kind of the 70 years of um, tensions and 
there's been act of parliament, all sorts of kind of changes, and but also some clear issues. Um, so what then, how does it happen that London's water finally becomes public property in 1904 after these decades of contest and reform, etc.? Why does it become public property in 1904? Well, London comes into line with many other, um, most other major population centres. Um, there has been a tendency over the last um, 50 odd years of the 19th century for what was called the municipalization of water supplies. So local authorities have been given the powers to uh, take over or replace private water companies, and a lot of them had um, uh, taken advantage of that. And so by the 1890s, it's quite clear that you can supply water uh, through a sort of municipal system, some of which uh, were hugely ambitious. I mean, Liverpool, Birmingham went hundreds of, uh, not hundreds, but but um, many tens of miles to uh, the Welsh mountains for fresh water supplies and built these huge dams, flooding whole valleys and villages and building great big aqueducts and so on. Um, London didn't have anything like that, however, partly because London didn't have a municipality. There was not a an overall local council for London until the London County Council was created at the end of the 1880s. There was something called the Metropolitan Board of Works, which did very good work in rebuilding um, the sewers. If you know anything of London's 19th century history, you'll know the work of a, a splendid man called Joseph Bazalgette, another of these uh, engineers um, with vision and drive, who um, uh, re-engineered London's sewers uh, for the Metropolitan Water, uh, Board of Works to keep sewage, raw sewage, out of the, the tidal river uh, and uh, send it downstream. Um, but the Metropolitan Board of Works was not a fully-fledged municipality, um, and it was never given the powers to take over the water supply. And when it tried to acquire them uh, rather late in its existence, it was rather discredited politically, and so it never won the support of government. Then along comes a replacement for the Metropolitan Board of Works, the London County Council, which is a proper municipality, except it turns out that that doesn't have the powers. It hasn't been given the powers to take over London's water either, unlike you know city municipalities elsewhere around the country. And that, I think, had to do partly with the fact that government in in Westminster was um, rather jealous of this new source of uh, democratic legitimacy on its very doorstep and kept the LCC on a rather short reign. And then you had the problem of a very, in time, a very left-wing radical LCC wanting to introduce what it called at one point communism in water by taking over the water supply. And you had a conservative government at Westminster and there was this, you know, terrible clash. So it wasn't until a clever fix uh, in 1902, Act of Parliament in 1902, which resulted in the water companies being taken over in 1904, that uh, public ownership became feasible. And the clever fix was the creation of something called the Metropolitan Water Board. Um, It's it's confused me throughout this book because the Metropolitan Board of Works, NBW, and the Metropolitan Water Board, NWB, are terribly easy to confuse. But anyway, the Metropolitan Water Board had representatives of the LCC, yes, but also of the local 
what, what, what nowadays the borough councils in London and of all the local authorities around London. And um, finally, uh, there was a body uh, created um, capable of taking over the uh, the companies and spending a great deal of money on doing it because that was the other problem. These companies were very rich and successful and profitable and they had a huge investment in um, pumping stations and reservoirs and filter beds and miles and miles of, of pipelines and so on. And taking them over was not cheap. At one point, uh, a modern historian has estimated that the the cost of replacing London's water supply with a, a, a public, uh, publicly owned water supply would have been more than the entire cost of running the Royal Navy each year. And not surprisingly, um, governments took fright at that kind of expenditure. So it, 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 it took a long time. But in 1904, we got the Metropolitan Water Board, which seems to have done a pretty good job, really, through until its abolition and replacement by something called the Thames Water Authority uh, in the 1970s, which was in turn privatised in 1989, along with all the other um, publicly owned water authorities in Britain, and um, things started to go downhill again from there. So what then is the state of London's water companies today? Well, there is... One principal water company, Thames Water, which uh, both supplies the water and takes the sewage away. Uh, and then uh, around the periphery, there's another company called Affinity Water, which is which is much smaller. Uh, they are, like most of Britain's contemporary water companies, privately owned. Um, they were privatised uh, under Mrs Thatcher at the end of the 1980s. And the idea was that uh, history would be prevented from repeating itself. Uh, you would not have profiteering private water companies exploiting hapless consumers because you would have you would put in place a system of regulation, reg regulation of quality, something called the Drinking Water Inspectorate, uh, regulation of pollution through the Environment Agency, and regulation of the business of the water companies uh, and the prices they were able to charge and the profits they were able to make through um, off what uh, the, the the water regulator and. What happened in from about 2000 onwards was that m most, not all, but most of Britain's water companies fell into the hands of very large, often overseas investors who were not, frankly, very interested in um, the things like water quality. They were interested in, in profits. And the, the figure that um, really kind of leapt out at me and, and appalled me uh, when I came across it, um, which was turned up by investigative journalists working for the Financial Times and the BBC, was that in 1989, Britain's water industry was privatised with no debts. Uh, it didn't, the, the companies, um, these newly privatised companies basically owed no money to anybody, to banks or anyone else. Um, by 2019, they uh, had run up debts between them of £53 billion. This was money that they borrowed ostensibly to invest in improving infrastructure and mending leaking pipes and building new reservoirs and all this sort of thing, which sounds plausible until you realise that during that same period, their shareholders paid themselves £56 billion in dividends. In other words, the amount of money leaving the privatised water business uh, between 1989 and, and, and 2019 was um, 
in the form of dividends to shareholders was greater than the total investment uh, in uh, improving our water supplies, which is one reason, I'm afraid, why our we still have huge uh, rates of leaks and waste from uh, water mains, and we particularly now, um, in recent months, tremendous focus on this, we have um, constantly overwhelmed sewage treatment plants. They're not big enough, they don't have the capacity, uh, and they discharge large quantities of untreated sewage daily into the coast, into the seas around our coasts and into our rivers. And that's a scandal, and it frankly should never have been allowed to happen because there was uh, sufficient money in the uh, water business if it had been if investment had been properly directed and if the regulators had been doing their job uh, to ensure that that sort of thing um, would not have happened but the regulators I'm afraid were asleep uh, asleep at the wheel. So this was obviously a massive, massive project um, that both sounds absolutely fascinating, but also kind of like a lot. There was a lot of material to get through and a lot of history um, that you managed to explain in a really clear way, despite how many different aspects there are. Um, So it feels a little bit mean to ask this because the book has just come out. Um, But is there anything you're working on now or next? Uh, yeah, well, the answer to that is yes. Um, uh, there, I have a number of ideas. Um, uh, one of them I thought quite seriously about, which was having written a book about one major city and its water supply and its history, to write a, a book about a number of other major cities and the histories of their water supplies, particularly those which are in danger of running out of water and some very, very big and important places, Cape Town in South Africa, Los Angeles, Istanbul, are facing huge water stresses and it's not by any means clear what they can do about it. Now, I I might still write that book, but it is a, it's quite an ambitious book. It's frankly, it's as much journalism as it is history. And um, I'm not sure I want to go back to being a a journalist. Um, And also, um, candidly, uh, to do the job properly would involve a lot of travel. And I, under recent circumstances, am not that keen on things like long-distance intercontinental flights. So I'm looking at two other projects. Um, One is a biography of a man that uh, you won't have heard of, but he was a British spy in the 20th century, um, whose most interesting, uh, most colourful activities were uh, on the fringes of Russia and Central Asia during the period immediately following the Russian Revolution. Uh, And the other Uh, I got quite interested researching this book in the standards of business and ethics, business ethics in the 19th century. And I realized that um, there was an awful lot of fraud about and a lot of swindlers. And I thought I might write a book about Victorian swindles and Victorian fraudsters, um, uh, which there there is... (laughs) there is no shortage of material uh, and uh, you can it's the sort of uh, research you can do happily sitting at a desk and doesn't require getting on a plane and going to distant parts of the world well both of those projects sound quite fun um i think there's probably gonna be rather a lot of material for either of them uh so while you are off investigating that uh re listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled the mercenary river published by headline in 2022 Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Nick. 
not at all. Thank you very much for having me.